Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. It is such a busy week in the tennis world that we decided to change things up here on the Great Shot Podcast feed. Now, typically, if you're looking for the daily updates on the biggest storylines, results, controversies from the tennis world, typically our mini break podcast is the place you will hear those thoughts housed. That said, this week... Because we have five tour-level events on the calendar, we've decided to use the Mini Break Podcast to focus on exactly that. Those five events, the day-to-day developments we see happening on the tennis court, they are going to continue to be covered over on the Mini Break Podcast feed. But we did have two significant news events that deserve their own coverage. And that's why we are here on this Great Shot podcast feed today. So many people have heard about the chaos that unfolded in the Tote-Jung Shui matchup in Budapest. I wanted to bring on our dear friend, Tennis.com editorial producer, to discuss that storyline, the second allegation of assault now facing Alex Virev again. Those are significant storylines that deserve their own coverage, and it just wouldn't have done those storylines justice to discuss them on a mini-break podcast in a rushed manner so that we could also cover all the tennis that happened on the day as well. That's why we are here on the Great Shot podcast feed today. Again, David Kane joins me to discuss those two breaking news items in the tennis world, the chaos that unfolded in Budapest, the second assault charge now being uh, now facing Alex Zvira. Of course, we also wanted to use this break in the calendar there. I say I know there's five tour level events happening, but we're making the transition from the end of the grass court season to the start of the North American hard court swing. We want to talk about where things stand on both the ATP WTA tours. And in order to do that, we thought the best mechanism would be to look so through the prism of a couple of year-end races. We wanted to talk player of the year races, how they're heating up. We, of course, wanted to talk tour finals races and then get into a look at some of the best 21 and under players. What do those next-gen finals look like, not just on the men's side, but on the women's side as well? Perhaps that will help uh, illuminate to whom you all should be watching. That was just bad English. Anyways, hopefully you all feel well-prepared for this final third of the season. You'll feel caught up to date on everything happening in the tennis world after this episode. It's a phenomenal one. Myself, David Kane. This is a long enough introduction. So with enough said, let's get to it. Here is my talk with DK catching you up on a busy news week plus a year-end race update. Westoff, give me that intro music. Let's start today's show. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey. 
joining us on the podcast today to help catch up on the latest news from the tennis world, as well as take a look at where things stand in three of our more intriguing races this season, Player of the Year, the Tour Finals, and the Next Gen Finals is a man you all know as a returning champion of returning champions here on our Crack Rackets podcast. I refer to him as one of my co-hosts of the Mini Break podcast. Of course, you all know him best as an editorial producer for all things tennis.com and tennis channel. Lately, he's just turned into our on-the-ground beat reporter for all things happening at the tour level. It is our dearest friend, David Kane, joining us on the show once again. DK, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Feels like it's been a very chaotic post-Wimbledon week. A lot of drama, not a lot of rest, a lot of bored people, (laughs) a lot of stuff (laughs) happening, and uh, looking forward to breaking it down for you. So do you attribute the plethora of news? Because I agree with you. Let's start there. I think that's a fun place to begin. Do you attribute that to boredom? Do you attribute that to these being significant news events? Like, do they, are they worthy of, I mean, I think one of them is very worthy of the conversation we're going to have today. That, of course, is all things regarding Alex Sverev, and we'll get to that in a moment. But obviously, we're referring to the chaos that's unfolded in Budapest, and we'll get to the details of that in a moment. Is it truly newsworthy, or are we just bored? I mean, it's sort of a confluence of a couple of things, isn't it? It's the fact that we're in the post-Wimbledon lull. It was the order in which things sort of dripped out onto social media. It was how it was amplified on accounts that tennis players follow. It was the fact that it involves a player who is very popular amongst her peers playing someone who no one's ever heard of. <laughs> so I think it was sort of the a perfect storm of post-slam nonsense, <laughs> quite frankly. Michigas, as we uh, say I mean, I think it's gone from confusing to sad to offensive. It's really, it's, ta- it's hit every... Uh, every bullet that you'd want from a uh, a social media scandal, social media driven scandal, I should say. But I suspect that if this was a match that had happened in the first round of Wimbledon, it wouldn't have necessarily caught the same um, caught the same interest and intrigue as it did, given the fact that it was really the only the only game in town, uh, so to speak, uh, happening in Budapest. So I think you are correct. But I would also add that this feels like Something we would see in another professional sport, something we would see in a basketball, in a football, in a team-oriented sport where some sort of call generated some sort of controversy that led to some sort of conflict that persisted well after the result. And tennis is a sport where I've said this before. Why do we have the mini break podcast? Because Monday only matters till Tuesday. Tuesday's results only matter till Wednesday. And the tournament continues to progress with each passing day. This is a storyline that, you know, again, is indicative perhaps of a broader thing. We need to get line calling better on clay courts. And, you know, again, this was a significant controversy that drew the attention not just of the participants within the match, but from their peers within the sport as well. I I mean, again, I don't want to relish in a controversy because it sucks that we have to talk about something like this at all. But I do think this is the sort of thing you see in other sports that maybe at times you just don't see that frequently within tennis. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we've been talking around it a little bit and we've been both a bit flipped because it is sort of surreal the way things have unfolded. The fact that CNN is reaching out to yeah. uh, one Amarisa Toth, a player that I had never personally heard of or watched play before. And I'm sure most players and most people have never heard of her either. And the fact that the, something as big as CNN is is involved in a story like this. And so I think that's sort of where our initial attitude comes from. But I do think it's important to break down the players, so to speak, both not only literal players, but the players uh, involved in this whole situation before we, we before we break this down further. So with that said, this is why I called you our beat reporter for all things in the tennis world. There's no one I can think of better to discuss all aspects of this than you, DK. Set the scene for our listeners, please. Who are the players? What are we talking about? What are the perceptions? How did it all unfold? For sure, because I thankfully had the uh, privilege of being able to watch the entire end of the match to get a fuller sense of what happened. So I think it's, I feel confident breaking, delivering this to you in a way that will be hopefully instructive and informative. So we have the we have, first of all, the players. We have Zhang Shui, who is a, a multiple time Grand Slam quarterfinalist, top 20, 30 player, uh, frequent doubles player very popular with her peers. As it turns out, I think we could have gotten that sense just from, again, the frequency with which she plays doubles and the fact that she is a veteran in the locker room has never had any major major on-court issues. Obviously, there have been some, you know, in a long career, there have been some minor things in the past. I think she got into a bit of a a scuffle over a line call with Katie Swan a couple of years ago, and that sort of spilt onto social media. But generally, a player who does not make a ton of waves does her job as one of the one of the many um, people the, who does yeoman service. I think I would describe uh, Zhang Shui, someone who famously had that win over uh, Simona Halep at the 2016 Australian Open and really kickstarted her career and has been uh, a fixture within the um, the top two three tiers of the sport ever since. And then across the net is her opponent um, Amarisa Toth, who is ranked I think sub top 400, is playing her third or fourth. Um, WTA main draw match is a wild card playing at her home tournament at the uh, Hungarian Grand Prix in Budapest. And I should also add that Zhang Shui has been very open about mental health struggles in the past couple of months, uh, described a falling out with the Chinese Tennis Federation, the fact that she has not been uh, able to travel home to China in the last two or three years. And that's obviously a factor in all of this, the fact that she has been dealing with some some mental health struggles. And then, of course, there is the umpire, uh, Morgane Lara, who is from France and has become a I wouldn't I don't know if popular is not the right word, but a, a frequent uh, umpire in some of these WTA matches. Not to my memory, has been involved in any major um Disputes with players is not known for any particularly egregious calls, has just been another um member of the tennis ecosystem over the last several years. So another a, a familiar face, certainly to Zhang Shui, if not to Amarisa Toth. And so Zhang Shui, number two seed, is serving at five all, 15 all. A long rally ensues and Zhang Shui hits a uh, cross-court forehand angle that is called out. Uh, Zhang Shui asks Lara to check the line. She checks it. She confirms the call is out. And chaos ensues <laughs> for all intents and purposes. Zhang Shui is apoplectic, feels that the ball was very clearly in. There are numerous replays during the feed of the match that seem to neither confirm nor deny. It looks like there may they may have touched the line. It's really hard. It's not one of those obvious, wow, it's so clear. It was certainly more out than in, I think, is the way that one would describe it. And so 
with that wiggle room, I think, you know, Lara is calling it out, sees it out. Zhang Shuai wants the supervisor who, as we may or may not know, a supervisor is not, is I would say 99.9% not going to overrule an umpire's confirmation of a call. And yet Zhang Shuai wants the supervisor. She says, I can no longer trust you to the umpire as a result of this call. This goes back and forth for well over five minutes, versioning six, seven minutes, engages with Toth across the net, wants Toth's opinion on the call. Toth is telling her to, to keep playing. Let's keep playing. The supervisor finally does come out, explains the situation to Zhang Shuai. Meanwhile, the commentator covering this world feed is fairly critical of Zhang Shuai because I think as a veteran, she knows that she's not going to get satisfaction on this call. This call has been reviewed. It's a clay tournament. There is no Hawkeye. It is what it is. And so after a long back and forth with between Zhang, the supervisor, the umpire, Zhang goes back, wins a very quick point to was from 15:30 now 30 all after the point after that point is over toth approaches the line and as uh toth is approaching the line jong shui is saying no don't touch the mark and at this is at that point that toth wipes the mark away with her shoe and jong takes the opportunity then to for, to re uh restart her um her argument with the umpire and is effectively saying that if Toth is touching the line, touching the mark, she knows that the ball is in and it's just eliminating the evidence. And I should remember, I should remind you all that it is very close to the end of the set. The court was going to be cleaned anyway. And so you may wonder if perhaps if John wanted to take a picture of the, the call rather the mark during the changeover, what is the reason for that? It was going to be wiped away anyway. And so several points happen without incident. Jong is broken. She is overwhelmed, distraught, calls the trainer. The trainer doesn't see any physical issues with her. Jong says, I can't play in these conditions, says she's going to retire. And it's at this point, I should also add that during those, those while they didn't pass with incident, with any major upset or incident, there's beef at this point, I would say, between Jong and Toth. You know, Jong is yelling, Toth is yelling after the point. She shakes the, um, she, you know, kind of shakes the umpire's hand, does Jong. She shakes Toth's hand and as Jong leaves the net, um, Toth raises her arms in celebration. And that was something that we saw happen after, you know, something that we saw happen after the match and happen on social media. And so what we ended up getting, it's just a lot, it's a very long story. And I feel like maybe I'm not doing it justice, but I really wanted to explain everything that happened first. So those are all the players. And that is exactly what happened from five all 15 all to the end of the match. Do you have any opinions on that? I guess I should add. Well, first of all, I thought you did the story absolute justice in laying out all because I'm not even done. Yeah. Then there's a whole social media element <laughs> yeah. of it. But that's well, that's what happened. That's what happened. We'll get to the reaction to what happened in a moment. It is frustrating in an era where some events have elected to use electronic line calling on clay courts that that standard is not going to be set anywhere. And I do think more broadly. How do you avoid situations like this in the future, which is what we have to be focused on coming off of something like this, is pick. Use it or don't. But you can't have electronic line calling available for some events and not all of them. I think it has to be standardized. I think, you know, again, do clay courts provide marks? Yes. Are you 100% certain of those marks ever? No. That is more broadly what is indicated by this. Or, you know, that is the bigger takeaway for me is that once again, it's a situation where because we don't have electronic line calling perfected on all of these surfaces, there is doubt injected and that doubt leads to the chaos we saw unfold. 
I think that's reaction number one. I mean, reaction number two is to everything that transpired in the match. And I suppose we'll get there in a second. Any thoughts on one? Well, I think we're dealing with the fact that this is a 250 tournament in Budapest. Sure. After a slam, I would imagine perhaps lower profile. Yeah, it's not something that is high priority, perhaps, on a clay court 250s list to have as a tournament, just given where their budget and money has to go. They're playing on a clay court, to your point, you could check the mark. That's sort of the, the thing that is famous about clay court tennis is you could check the mark. The umpire is able to give some degree of certainty whether the ball is in or out. And so that's perhaps why maybe in the um, in the WTA's decision to revamp the circuit structure, emphasize equal prize money, perhaps there will be some also additional focus on ensuring that Hawkeye Live is present on at least the stadium main court of all of its tournaments. Perhaps that is something that they are aiming to have at some point in the future. The fact that we have started to see the encroachment of Hawkeye slash electronic line calling on clay courts in the last, I would say, two years mm-hmm. means that I believe we're, we're moving in that direction. But at the same time, we're also dealing with players who are certainly familiar with the rhythm of playing a quote-unquote traditional clay court tournament. They know that they have the opportunity to ask the umpire to confirm a call and are then expected to move on with the decision of the umpire. So there's there's those two things. These are not necessarily players who've grown up with line calling, electronic line calling on clay courts and are now having to go without. So I think while there should be, and while there probably should be a move towards electronic line calling everywhere, that is not something that has been the standard to this point. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would say to part number two, and again, the more broad reaction, it's hard not to couple my own reaction to what I saw unfold with the reaction we saw on social media and the collective, for lack of a better term, pile on that followed. Look, it was a bad look for Toth to go up and scratch the mark with her foot. It was a bad look for Toth to seemingly embrace the yeah, chaos. I, mean, and, uh, sorry, I don't want to interrupt. Sure. I don't want to interrupt you because I think that that's part of the, the social media yeah. issue here is the fact that we got what was effectively a 20 minute incident that started at five all 15 all we got yeah. what was three separate clips yeah. kind of exactly. disseminated yes. out of order. We got the handshake and the celebration. We got the erasing of the mark we got the re- we got the point that caused the incident sort of not all at once and i think the erasing of the mark i think was perceived by many as some as something that was done while the while Zhang was actively um, was actively arguing with Lara. This was not a situation. This was not a Jimmy Connors, uh, Adriano Panada situation where Jimmy's running across the, from the other side of the court to wipe out a mark before the umpire gets a chance to check it. Lara had already checked, made the call, confirmed the call. Anything that happened after the fact had no bearing on whether that mark was still on the court. And I defy you to find any clay court match in the last year, in the last 20 years, where a player does not approach a controversial mark well at well past the point of those things happening with the umpire that they wipe the mark. I mean, I watched a lot of Arena Sabalenka at Roland Garros, for example. Arena was wiping away every mark once the point was over, even if it was, you know, in the middle of the court. She was just wiping these marks. And so should she have continued to wipe the mark after Jong is telling her not to? Probably not. This is after 10 minutes of arguing, an argument that perhaps 
would that have happened if Zhang was up against someone who was a top 50 player or someone who she had any indication of who she was? Maybe she wouldn't have. Would Toth, if she'd been more, you know, um, if, if she had been a more familiar member of the circuit, would she have felt free to do that? But at, at the point at which she approached the the mark, there was no arguing happening. She had just hit a return out at 1530. It was 30 all. And she approached the approached the line and uh, wiped the wiped the mark with her shoe at the point at which the handshake occurred. They were already not happy with one another. Zhang was yelling after winning points. Toth was yelling after winning points. They were not in a good space. And so and then there's also the fact that Zhang was retiring effectively because she was having effectively an, an you know emotional moment. This was not an injured player who had to retire and Toth is celebrating. I think that was the the, the big issue here is that the first video ever anyone saw was a Zhang Shui in tears, shaking hands, having to retire, and Toth celebrating. And people perceiving that as, oh my God, she's celebrating because an injured opponent can't continue. It was sort of the culmination of what had been an emotional meltdown for the last 10 to 15 minutes. So I think, but I think all of those things in isolation are all very much big red flags. If you're someone who is a familiar person to tennis, if you're a player, those are all three things individually you don't want to see. You don't want to see someone celebrating when you have to retire. They don't want to see you wiping a mark if you're telling someone not to wipe a mark. And they don't certainly don't want to see an umpire not overruling a call in your favor if you think that that call was meant to be in your favor. So I think it was a lot of triggering incidences all happening out of order that created this big, big upset. I agree with everything you said. I'm glad you interrupted me. The only other thing I would add, and then I do want to hear your thoughts on the social media perspective, but it is just worth remembering for Amarisa Toth, who comes into this event 20 years old, a wild card, 548 in the world. You win a first round match at a 250 event, you are into the top 500. And now all of a sudden, instead of playing 25Ks, you're playing 40Ks. Or instead of 40Ks, you're playing 60Ks. Slowly but surely, you have the opportunity to progress in the rankings. You're also playing this tournament in your home country, something I am sure she has dreamed about her entire life. Now, this is not to excuse her actions, but this is to understand why is she not going to give the benefit of the of a call unequivocally? Because this is a life or death moment. This is a, hey, I'm five all first set with a player who's top 35 in the world. I got a shot in this match. Like, if I get a call, I have to take it. And while some may be thinking, oh, that's the unchivalrous thing to do. Well, how many times in your life have you just unequivocally given a call to someone in your life when you've been on the tennis court? This was also not a call that Toth was on top of. It wasn't like she was on top of the baseline, saw it in and refused and to concede. She also it was wasn't on the, the other who- side of the court. And she didn't make the call. It's like yeah. the umpire made it. The, the lines person made it. Well, like. It's not in her complete control. Now, could she have conceded the point? Absolutely. But to your point, she didn't see it 100%. Like, in her mind, it was close. And if the chair and, and the linesman are both yeah, and the linesman, out, I do think yeah. that's also been lost here, too, is that there's a sense of, like, the umpire acted arbitrarily or unilaterally yeah. to call it out. She confirmed a call that was already deemed out. So I don't necessarily feel, you know, because I think there's a lot of – there's a lot of energy directed towards Lara. There's a lot of energy directed towards Toth. And then there's now even, I would say, the most fair energy directed towards the tournament and their response to it. But we'll maybe we'll save that. Well, I want to let you get to all of that in a moment. Sure. Here's why I wanted to bring up that perspective on Toth, because there has been a pile on. 
There is not a player out there, nor Twitter account zagging and making the toth de- defense. And, you know, Sarah Cerebus, yeah. Tormo, and Rebuskova should send her a, a bouquet of flowers yeah. into this because they were certainly the, the villains of the day for quite a while. And now Toth is, has fully the, taken that throne. The crown has been passed. There's no doubt about that. And all I'm asking for everyone is to remember this is a 20 year old trying to establish herself on the pro tour. Like, again, was it was not classy how the match progressed from 15 all onwards. That's sport. That's conflict. And again, sometimes it brings out the best in people. Sometimes it brings out some something a little less than that. There's no doubt that was not a Marissa Toth at her best, but you can understand the perspective that she was coming from and not just automatically conceding the point. And I just feel like that has been lost in everything because the pot, look, she was in the wrong. Like, it was it was a horrible situation, but the pylon's almost been worse, DK. Talk us through what we've seen and again, take us home. Again, it's one of those it's like a nesting doll situation yeah. where if Toth had done nothing, which is to say, I think if she had not celebrated mm-hmm. after winning, you know, after yes. the match had ended, I think she would have gotten away with it because again, it is striking to listen to the commentary and to see how pro Toth the commentator is and it's a result of watching everything play out in real time. It's not watching these three individual instances. It was effectively a player playing someone else. Their opponent hits a ball out. Ball's confirmed is out. The player, the opponent is complaining for a very long time. It's well beyond the point at which someone would say, girl, it's over. You're not getting an overrule. The supervisor's not going to overrule you. Like everyone knows that. Like as much as everyone would, as nice as it would have been for her to say, no, no, I concede. It's just, it's not going to happen. It's just very unlikely. And so, um, oh my God, I lost my train of thought. What was the question? <laughs> no, no, it's just the, 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 it's again. Yeah. There's I've, just a lot here because I think again, yeah. the fact that, okay, the fact it's the that collective um, pile on was, was the collective the, pile on is a result of the fact that, listen, we're two days removed from Wimbledon. There's literally nothing going on for most of the top players. You know, these videos top are circulating top. on social media. They're being retweeted. Players are seeing them sort of, again, out of order, seeing these three, you know, instances and really, reacting in a powerful way that this is not the way that the tour this is not the way that the tour operates this is not becoming of a WTA player everyone showing a tremendous outpouring of support to Zhang Shui who again has been really going through it the last couple of months has been losing a lot of matches is just not happy is dealing with a lot and I do hope that this is a moment for Zhang to take some time away from tour perhaps and to really collect herself and and come back stronger because she certainly deserves it has a phenomenal game even during that match had some really great shots as as difficult of time as she was having out there and listen this is going to take a while for Amarisa Toth to live down I mean you know this is it's very it's interesting that this should happen the same year that one Ju Lin made the fourth round of the Australian Open because until she had made that deeper run at a Grand Slam, Ju Lin was most famous for her 2015 BNP Paribas Open match against uh, Francesca Chiavone when Ju Lin is tracking a drop shot and appears not to call a double bounce on herself. And Chiavone is watching her and saying, this is for TV. You're only 18 years old and you're doing this thing. You know, this was seen as a tremendous move of cheating the likes of which we have we have never seen before and julian you know had to do a tremendous penance over those couple of years where every time her name was brought up that incident was brought up and i think in the years that you know eventually that memory faded she has this tremendous comeback story and there is no mention of the incident 
you know, will we have to deal with that situation with Tote? Like you mentioned, winning a match, she now has perhaps opportunities to move farther up the rankings. You know, does she have the game, the, the stature to, you know, become a, a future top 100 player? I don't know. This may be the, the thing that she is most known for in her life. And if that's the case, that's unfortunate for her. Um, she was certainly quite, you know, defiant uh, in her quotes after the match saying that, you know, I felt that she was making a lot of trouble for herself and I didn't feel I did anything wrong. So she doesn't certainly feel like she's the victim. Uh, she doesn't feel like she is the the villain in this situation. She feels very much aggrieved, but this is going to be a tough, certainly couple of weeks for her because I think there's, I think players are not going to forget this. Players are not going to forget, you know, what the umpire did or didn't do. I think there's just a lot of fallout from this moment. Um, for as much positivity as there has been to rain, radiate around Zhang Shui, there has been equal and opposite um, energy for both Toth and Lara. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave things. And to your point, everyone has come out for Zhang Shui in favor of her and the love she clearly feel uh it, it receives in the earned. locker room or has yeah. earned from the rest of her peers uh it has not gone unnoticed to your point and so for those of you that might have missed out on what happened there's your update that has certainly been the biggest news story of the week now we do have one other news story i want to touch on here and we'll be briefer on this one then uh and then we'll talk some tennis here on today's show alex virev uh and obviously his history he no longer has the benefit of the doubt from just about anyone in the tennis industry. And, you know, certainly if you have read Ben Rothenberg's reporting on a allegation of assault uh, on Alia Sharipova, excuse me, um, which Ben reported on in two pieces for Racket Magazine and Slate. If you haven't read those, I would highly encourage you to do so. On Wednesday, it came to light that Zverev now faces a second allegation of assault by another former partner, Brenda Patea. I apologize if I mispronounced her last name, who is also the mother of their daughter. Uh, according to the outlet RTL, the public prosecutor's office in Berlin is seeking a penalty order against, this is from the Tennis.com article, the two-time ATP finals champion for allegedly bodily, uh, for alleged bodily harm. If the court decides the order should be granted, Zirov will have two weeks to file an appeal. This process does not involve a trial. Now, again, the key term there, second allegation of assault. If if you want to read about the first, go read Ben's reporting. There have not been details yet that have emerged about this second alleged assault. Um, that said, it is a second now uh, allegation towards Sverev. Your reaction, DK, to this reporting. And again, the fact that he played a match today against Diego Montiero. He won it 0-1. He is on court. And there is absolutely something to innocent until proven guilty. But once again, it speaks to the ATP remaining silent until absolutely being forced to say something. And it just feels like most organizations would have provided some sort of statement by now, right? We haven't gotten anything. What is there to say, really? I mean, I think the emotion that came to mind when I first read the news was just one of sadness that this is another issue, you know, uh, involving, you know, an innocent person, perhaps involving, you know, a child, you know, in the situation. It's eh, there are no winners in in this situation. It is something that is easy for us to project onto 
tennis, because I think that's what we are most equipped to do. What will this mean for him? How will he handle this? What is the reason? What is the fallout on the court? And much like the last time this, uh, these these kinds of accusations surface. Vera came to court and played remarkably well, you know, played really great tennis at the end of 2020 in the wake of the initial allegations against uh, uh, against him from his former partner, Olya Sharapova. And now second allegations coming from a second ex-partner. This is, um, this is a relationship that has been contentious for a fairly long time. I believe there was... Um, interactions between the two of them in the past in which Zvera uh, was perceived to perhaps be mischaracterizing the relationship between himself and her and she having to go into the press and say, we are actually not on the kind of good terms that he was describing. And now this instance um, is surfacing in, in the media or in the courts, I should say, and we don't know any of the circumstances. We know a very vague, broad description of the act in question. We don't know when it happened, how it happened, what evidence there is to support it. Certainly in the first instance, there was a good deal of contemporary corroborated evidence from both Sharipova, from witnesses um, who saw things happen or were, were saw pictures at the time that things had happened. And in spite of that, there was no really satisfying resolution from the ATP tours investigation, one that did not explicitly exonerate him, but it seemed to lean on the fact that there was an insufficient amount of direct evidence correcting him, uh, connecting him to those allegations. And I think at the time, Zverev took that as exoneration, which was not the case. And now we're experiencing this happening very soon after the initial um conclusion of the ATP's first investigation. And now perhaps we are on the verge of another one. And I don't know where this goes from here. We certainly need a lot more information. Um, you know, the last time again that this happened, we were given a lot at the front, at the outset that this happened. And now we're dealing with sort of just the the seeming existence of a pattern. The fact that this has happened seeming to seem to have happened before, it has perhaps happened again. The reaction across the board, I think, is one of, of of disappointment, perhaps disgust, you know, this idea that, you know, we're, we're also bearing witness perhaps to the moving of goalposts. You know, there was a lot of um, aspersions cast on Sharipova's victimhood and how best she should have handled the situation. And now how this second uh, potential victim is, or rather alleged victim, is, is handling the situation. It is just, it's not the kind of thing that you want to have as part of your tour environments. I mean, to your, you know, to your point last week, we were talking about where Zverev fits into this current landscape and putting him perhaps at the forefront of a second half surge. He has very few points to defend. This could be a, a very great year for him. And again, the wake of some very distressing allegations and how the tour has learned from the previous instance, how it plans to react to this one. Perhaps the fact that this is going through the courts, if this is how, depending on how this determined, will make things easier for the tour. We have, that remains to be seen. But all told, it's just not a storyline that we wanted to have to talk about. But it is one that we are continuing to have to talk about because there does appear to be the existence of a pattern. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly where I think we should leave things on this story because, to your point, we're still waiting for more reporting to emerge. The, the biggest indictment is, again, I know there was a 
you know, there was an investigation for the ATP. They cleared him of wrongdoing for insufficient evidence. To your point, they haven't released a statement. We haven't seen a statement from Zverev's team yet either. Obviously, when we do hear those statements, we'll continue to discuss this topic as more reporting emerges. But, you know, again, typically the tour would have said something. And even as a tournament is a day-by-day sort of thing, you just you'd think, again, the tour would say, well, maybe he shouldn't be playing this week. Maybe, again, I know it's innocent until proven guilty, but we should react in some sort of fashion as the ATP tour. They have not. When they do, we will discuss it more here on this show. But with that said, let's discuss some tennis before I let you go here, DK, because, again, Wimbledon's in the books. Yes, there are are five tour-level events happening this week. And, again, you have players like Rude, Rublev, Svirov, Kasakina, Emma Navarro, who's been killing it. Uh, she might even be on David's radar, even though he's allergic to players with college tennis ties. Uh, Jung Chin Wen as well, get reaching a much-needed quarterfinal. Toth. Yeah, Toth this week. <laughs> yeah, there, there's things happening on court, and we cover them day in, day out on the Mini Break podcast. But we do want to take a deep breath. Let's do some 30,000-foot view looking now and offer you all some year-end race updates. There are three I want to focus on in particular. Player of the Year, WTA, ATP Tour Finals fields, and then I'm making one up for the women's side, but I think there's some really intriguing 21 and under talent in both the men's and women's games. So that's what I want to talk about with you, DK, before I let you go. Of those six categories, Player of the Year, Tour Finals, next-gen finals, men's or women's. I'll let you pick. What's the most interesting to you right now and why? Well, I mean, I think we started this conversation last week or was it a couple of days ago? How long ago was it when we last spoke <laughs> in which we kind of came around to the idea that the player of the year debate on both the men's and the women's side is very much alive. And obviously, that is dependent on what happens perhaps in the next eight to 12 weeks. But I think you can make an argument and a decent argument for two to three players on both sides in a way that is not for an absence of accomplishment. I think we have six really accomplished players. I think sometimes when there is debate over who is player of the year, it's because, well, I don't know, it's just there's just been so much inconsistency or there's just been one you know person so far ahead of the rest that it's not even worth having the discussion. But I think we what we have on both the men's and women's sides are two very interesting trios. And I think it would be in, interesting to have that debate now and to revisit that debate perhaps after the U.S. Open. Yeah, it's... It is fun because you're right. And I would even sneak in a fourth player who I think is still alive in the player in the year race on the men's side because I'm not saying this is going to happen, but let's start on the men's side of things because this is probably the quicker discussion. And, you know, again, you know who the race is between right now. It's Carlos Alcaraz, Novak Djokovic. We can do the numbers very quickly here. Shout out to the Tennis Abstract Stats leaderboard. Alcaraz, 47-4. and four. That's a 92.2% win percentage. Djokovic, 33-5, and five, 86.8. Those are your two best right now amongst top 50 players. You go to the win per, uh, you go to the, excuse me, wins against top 20 players. Alcaraz, 16-3. and three. Djokovic, 12-3. and three. Top 50 wins. Alcaraz, 28-3. and three. Djokovic, 19-4. and four. Djokovic in the top 10 club, top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Alcaraz, one of three players to rank top 15 in hold and break percentage. Djokovic, two slam titles. 
Alcaraz won, but of course Alcaraz beats Djokovic in that Wimbledon final. Djokovic gets him in the Roland Garros semifinals. It's advantage Djokovic ever so slightly, ever so slightly right now, simply because he does have that second Grand Slam title under his belt. But again, the totality of things Carlos Alcaraz can do to surpass him. You look at total finals again, Alcaraz six and one, he's won six titles, Djokovic three and one. You figure we're going to see Alcaraz probably play more events than Djokovic down the season's home stretch. And there's still Cincinnati, Canada, Paris, tour finals on top of the U.S. Open on the board. So still some meat out there. Those are the top two. But to that point, you know, Medvedev's 5-1 and one in finals. He's made six, one less than Alcaraz. He's won five titles. He's won Masters events on hard courts, clay courts. He's now made a slam semifinal. He could win the U.S. Open, win maybe two of Paris, Cincinnati, and Canada. You know, end the season on a really strong note. He's probably not quite eliminated. And then... I'm just not willing to write off Yannick Sinner's 37 and 11 oh, girl. because no, 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 no. <laughs> if Sinner, like it all clicks and he wins Cincinnati, he wins the U.S. Open. Then you start to look at the totality of his season. You're like, well, wait a second. Yannick, like, again, this involves him. I got to call in Morgan Larat overrule this one. What? <laughs> <laughs> so incorrectly. Topical. Um, no, all I'm saying is. He is the darkest of the dark horse. He's like the, there are four guys on the board. Alcaraz and Djokovic are the two clear-cut favorites. Medvedev's like a seven, you know, probably a 10 to one odds. And then Sinner's like the 40 to one where you're like, I want to be really adventurous and he gets really hot. But the point is, yes, I think right now it's Djokovic over Alcaraz because yes, Alcaraz has the bigger counting numbers. Djokovic has the two slams. And with everything else being pretty damn even, I just lean two slams. But, like, Alcaraz can pass him in a totality thing. First of all, you keep saying totality, and it makes me think of the New Haven Eclipse video in which Petra Kvitova describes the path of totality. And (laughs) I I highly recommend New Haven Eclipse, WTA, if if you're not watching it. I would describe the situation between Djokovic and Alcaraz on terms that certainly Djokovic can understand in terms of a tiebreak. And I would say (laughs) that Djokovic is up 5-4, but Alcaraz has two serves. Sure. That's In the sense that no mini you know, break, but he's leading. No mini break. I think I think if you the way that it Alcaraz was beat like him at five Wimbledon. One. Yes. Yes. I think that would he made up a huge amount of ground. I think just narratively speaking, to beat Djokovic at Wimbledon to win this land. I mean, I think it's just a lot. And obviously to have two serves to go is 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 a reference to the fact also that we're approaching what was a very fruitful part of the year for Alcaraz, defending U.S. Open champion, an opportunity to play a full fall swing for the first time after being injured at the end of last year. How will he fare at a, at a hypothetical ATP finals, presuming he stays healthy? And obviously Djokovic has historically, while he's made nine U.S. Open finals, has only won three times. So this is not the most, uh, has not historically been the most fruitful to the end uh, major season, although you would part of the season for him, although you would expect it to be because it's hard courts and, you know, Novak in New York, it seems like a totally perfect fit. Um, I do think at the end of the day, yes, Djokovic is very much ahead. I think when you win the first two slams, two to one, you know, even though Alcaraz, I think has done certainly more on, on the tour level in, com- in combination with his master's success, you still have to give the edge to Novak because of those two slams, how close he was to being that close to another calendar, you know, calendar your Grand Slam attempt. It's definitely him. I think Medvedev is another one who is in that 
he's uh, he is most in that spoiler position where he's the one who is most capable of just running the table on hard courts for the next three to four months. He has wins over Djokovic on hard courts, has not been as successful recently against Alcaraz. You know, a lot of things would have to fall into place. I think he is the most capable of resting that player of the year mantle from the other two. To the extent that Sinner has a chance, it makes me think that he has as much of a chance perhaps as Casper Ruud has a chance. You know, like I think he's someone who made, you know, a a major final. If Casper were to win the U.S. Open and run the table indoors, he would be in the conversation as well. But I think those three are really, in my mind, the most likely to end the year uh, player of the year. And Djokovic is in pole position to do it right now. Yeah. And just for broader context, because the player of the year is always just the player who finishes in the rankings world number one. So Alcaraz was the player of the year last year, even though I think many of us left 2022 thinking as Djokovic. Uh, is that, the, is Djokovic that what that, is that the ATP Rafa, definition? Yeah, it's just the world number really? one is the player of the year. Because Alcaraz was player of the year last year. Did they not get like, but there's not like a year end number one award? No, I like, think the player of the year is always just the year end number one. Oh. I'm fairly oh, certain w- I'm right about this. Yeah, the WTA, WTA has separate. a year end number one and a player. Oh, I just assumed yeah. this whole time. No, oh, my I, bad. I'm, I'm fairly <laughs> certain the ATP does just the one and again. I guess it goes to show how uninteresting player of the year has been <laughs> on the ATP side over the years. Well, like you kind of always had a sense and Dianu, my friend. And just to to raise the stakes, I did the whole rant on what Alcaraz is trying to accomplish on the mini break on Monday. So you can go hear that rant about where his 47-4 record stands. Was I there? Historically. (laughs) No, you checked out for that part of the pod. Did I tune out? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But you checked in for that again, where he stands comparatively to Rafa, Djokovic, Federer at their age, 20 seasons, you know, Hingis board, Zellis. 78, Celis, Hingis exists. So you were there. You do. It's coming back. It's coming back to me. Yes. Here's the point. Here's what we're playing for right now. I looked at the numbers and I've gone all the way back to 1990. I've really, I went all the way back to 1988 just so I could add an additional name to this list. Here are the list of players who have won three slams in a single season since 1988. Federer did it three times. Nadal did it once. Mats Wielander did it back in 1988. I love Joe, how you thought the list wasn't long enough. You're like, let well, me add another name. Well, because it's so fun <laughs> if it's just the big three. It's got to be like someone else has done it, right? Because Shout it's out just to uh, Game Shet Mats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, if it's just those guys, where's the fun in that? Here's the point, though. Djokovic, if he wins three slams this year, not only will he have done it at age 36, he'll have done it for the fourth time in his career. Just throw another record on his list. And by the way, that makes sense because he has the most men's slam titles in the open era in singles. And so, you know, again, that's the guy Alcaraz is competing with, and he's in the ballgame. Like he is in the ballpark. He is putting together a pantheon sort of season. This is one of those player of the year trophies that just weighs a little bit more. And it's a real race for, I don't know, you want to say the first time since 2017, really, when Federer and Nadal were trading slams that season? Because other than that, you know, 2019, maybe you throw that one in the mix as well. Like typically, one of those three guys had been the standout player of that season. And Djokovic is again in the lead right now, but Carlos can catch him a thrilling ending from Medvedev. And by the way, we've seen him go like a 27 and two stretch during from city open to back in the day with Shanghai, Paris, etc. We've seen him do that before. So it's not out of the realm of possibilities. 
it's a pantheon level player of the year race on the men's side. I agree. I think that why that's why that is the single most exciting category. Now on the women's side, look, it's the same three names: Rabakina, Sviantek, Sabalenka. Obviously, Iga Sabalenka have separated themselves a bit from Rabakina. Just unfortunately, she gets sick during the French Open, and then obviously, you know, you look at the Wimbledons, everything else being equal. You got to give the edge to the two players with slam titles. Am I ready to elevate Von Drosova definitively into the conversation? No, but I'll tell you what, if she does semifinals in Canada, quarterfinals in Toronto, maybe a little semi or final appearance in New York, like she would be the fourth player in my list who is now via slam title, can't be eliminated from the race. I can give you the numbers. In a second, if you make it, but I'll just ask first, Sebelenko or Sviantek, who you got as player of the year right now? No. Well, I mean, first of all, with Von Drusova, I will add, she's currently number five in the race, yeah. almost exclusively off her Wimbledon title. So really anything will be an opportunity for her to to make inroads. But no points to defend. Also worth noting, like she's playing some free, she's free falling in the best way forward. Completely. I mean, I listen, I think you can make an intellectual argument for either Shantek or Sabalenka. I agree. But I think where I, I lean right now yeah. is towards Iga. And Whoa! The why, yeah. Whoa! <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, Whoa! Clip it. Clip that sound. I bite. don't I'm, agree. Okay. I know why. I will tell you why. I have a very, I have two big reasons why. First of all, Iga has maintained her number one ranking in spite of a tremendous onslaught from Sabalenka and to a lesser extent, Rebakina. Shvantec was coming into this clay court season really under the radar, arguably the third to fourth best player on tour because there was a second or two where Krechkova was perhaps slipping in to that number three spot. And she has played a remarkable clay court swing, a, a solid to impressive grass court swing. And even though Shvantec lost, you know, a tricky three-setter to Alina Svitolina, you know what Shvantec didn't do? choke away a 4-2 lead in the second set of a semifinal. And I don't suspect that Shvantec would have done that if she were playing on Shabor in her first Wimbledon semifinal. I think it is hard to unsee and unremember these major disappointments from Sabalenka, who, to be fair, is the number one player in the race, has been the best player by the numbers for the last seven months. But I think we are starting to see that slow and steady is winning the race for Ika Shvantec. And so... And she is in position right now to have another really banner year. I mean, I think the the hard courts perhaps favor Sabalenka somewhat, but again, we saw we saw Shvantec go to the U.S. Open in conditions that she openly hated, and she won that tournament anyway. She was not undone by the pressure whatsoever, and we've seen now Sabalenka be undone by the pressure quite publicly at two majors in a row against players that she definitely should have beaten. And so, if she gets up against um, Shviantek in one of these matches, should they play at the U.S. Open? I, mean, I guess they won't. They're unlikely to play at the U.S. Open before the finals. That means Sabalink would have to win a, a slam semifinal to get there. Uh, I would give the the mental edge to Shviantek. I just think she has been mentally sharper since Miami. And that is, that's where I land for her. I think she's the one who has the, has the total package right now. I think Sabalink has a lot of raw talent that we appreciate perhaps she's closer mentally but those were two really brutal losses that really preclude me and preclude the rankings from declaring her number one 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I am blown away. I think that's the never let it be said <laughs> to a T. I it's hard to disagree with that argument. You look at the numbers; they're both three and two in finals this year. Iga forty-two and seven overall. Sabalenka forty and eight. You look at the records uh, against top fifty opponents. Sviantek thirteen and uh, excuse me, against top fifty opponents. Sabalenka twenty-six and six. Sviantek twenty-five and six against the top twenty. Iga thirteen and four. Sabalenka eleven and four. The numbers are equal. Like, these are the two best players in women's tennis right now. All things being equal, I agree. Again, everything you said about Iga holds true. I give the edge to Sabalenka just because the jump she's made this season. Like, Iga has consolidated her spot at the top of the rankings. But Sabalenka is now 1B. And, I mean, she is right there with Iga. To your point, yes, she's up a set and a break, and she loses that match. She's one good forehand away from holding for 5-3 and maybe closing out Jabur right there and playing in a second Grand Slam final this season. And while it's disappointing, the matches she's lost at the majors, she has been the constant factor. Semifinals are further at all three majors this season. She wins a Madrid title. She makes a final in Stuttgart. She makes a final in Indian Wells. There's not a portion of the calendar where Arena Sabalenka hasn't been an unequivocal factor. And Iga has been too. But you couldn't say that about Sabalenka before this season. And again, if I'm giving out an award, I want to tell the narrative of the season. And to this point, yes, Iga's been the best, but it's now a, a real conversation. And that's a testament to the jump of Sabalenka, which, again, is why I some might say, isn't that a most improved argument? Maybe so. She's my player of the year for now. But it's it's 1A1. Like, again, it's two separate conversations. Who's my player of the year? Sabalenka. Who do I think the best player in the world is right now? Iga. Does that make sense? That's interesting. I almost feel that it's opposite. I almost wow. feel like I feel like Arena is probably the better player right now, but has not really shown it at the moments that she needed to. But I think the player of the year is Iga because Iga's actually delivered. If that See, makes sense, I would go the exact opposite. It's like, oh, well, huh? It's a good debate. It's, yeah. it's a good I mean, debate. I mean, for me, I, my personal player of the year definition is very different. I, I, fa- mm. I take out all numbers. Surprise. No, I take out all <laughs> stats. It is very much a very simple question. It's like when I look back on this year, what will I remember? And I will absolutely remember that Australian Open final between Sabalenka and Rybakina at arguably the expense of all other things, maybe second only to the Madrid final between sure. Sabalenka and Sviantec. And it is very hard to reconcile the Sabalenka who won that match in Madrid over Sviantec and what I would consider to be a higher pressure situation to the Sabalenka who could not close against both Mukova and Jabor in these two Grand Slam semifinals. It's it's hard to, to, if she had won either of those matches, I think I would say Sabalenka with a bullet and she'd probably be one Grand Slam stronger <laughs> if she had won either of those semifinals perhaps. But no, I think it's it's Iga because Iga's delivering. Even if Sabalenka has shown more of her best than she's ever shown. And I think that's a great argument for, for most improved. But what Iga has been able to do to really just hold off 
everyone else for number one is something that cannot be. She is on course to be Walt Walt Wall number one for the entire season. Yeah, but you talk about what are you going to remember most from the year? That Australian Open final. Even the Indian Wells final, the Stuttgart final, the Madrid final. just feels like they all involved Sabalenka. And so that to me is why she's the player of the year because she was the one where it's like, hey, this is the match that's probably defining the outcome of the event. That said, I could be I, – I like your argument for Iga. I'm not going to disagree with it. I just have my I, – I just happen to agree with my argument. And so it's a really fun race. It's I wide open. I agree with myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's why I talk, to agree with myself. Um, anyways, let's roll from that into the WTA Tour Finals field. I'm going to give you names, and you just tell me agree or disagree. That work? That's good. Because yeah. honestly, again, I'm at a point where if it's just the three, Shvantec, Sabalenka, and Rabakina, we want to just cut it and just do a round robin between the three of them. I'm well, fine with that. What if we do those three and then the three checks play a little group play? And it's like Vondrusova, Mukova, Kvitova, you, the winner of you can be the fourth. I like that. I, li- I like the idea of there being a playoff for the yeah. WTA finals because I don't know if anyone has really outright earned it outside of those three. But well, give me give me your list. Drews is the fourth, Von Drusova. Yes. Yeah, because 38 and 10, like we could play good win, uh, good loss, bad win or whatever it is. Good uh, win, bad loss. <laughs> thank you. Um, like She doesn't have a bad loss. That's just a fact. And now she has a slam title. She is the fourth spot to me. After that, Pick a name out of a hat. Like, so I have the final four spots down to six players. And I think I have an order you're going to agree with. Five French Open finalists, Carolina Mukova. I like how you had to, like, qualify that that was (laughs) – it wasn't enough to say Carolina Mukova. You had to say French Open finalists. Well, I have to because the stats aren't that good. Like, she's got a high win percentage, but 23-9 and is not a top 10 wins number. Like, she's just been a little banged up, et cetera. I'm just saying, like, her peak has been that good. That's why to sure. me she's on the list. Yeah, I just – listen, if she stays healthy enough to play through the end of the year and be top eight, that is a big win for her. So I would certainly hope for her sake that she does that. So, yeah, based on her resume right now, relative to the rest of the field, yes. All right, six. Look, it's tough because, like, you know, six and seven versus top 20 opponents, but she's just dusting everyone she's supposed to. Jessica Pagula, just by virtue of she still makes quarterfinals everywhere. Like, she's my six. Yeah. I mean, she's outside of those three. She is the single most consistent player, albeit to a lower level than everybody else. Okay. Highest peak is my next spot. And I go Kvitova just over Ostapenko because Ostapenko has been really good at times this year. Quietly, one of the 10 players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage, just so you know, a little tidbit for why the stats back it up, DK. But Kvitova won Miami, so that's why she's got to be there. Yeah, I think the Miami Open gives gives her the edge and the nod. And I think if you're thinking of Given who we've just discussed, if you told me that Kvitova was going to be at a WTA Finals, I would say, yeah, duh. So yeah. I think that's at least a name to add to the list where we could say, well, she should be there. And has certainly done a good amount this year to deserve being there. Win percentage-wise, she's fourth on the WTA Tour Trails. Just Iga, Sabalenka, Rabakina. <sighs> this last spot's hard. I eliminated Ostapenko because, again, I had my one highest ceiling. I've got it down to Krechikova. Coco Goff and the player who actually has the spot in, according to the actual WTA live uh, race rankings on Jabur. 
<sighs> Look, Jabur made a Wimbledon final. It's grass courts. So just, you know, again, I weigh that less than what we've seen in other portions of the calendar. That said, I could argue we haven't seen the best from Jabur yet this season. Now that she's finally healthy and has rekindled some confidence, maybe you project outward and say her ceiling moving forward will be higher than the other two. I'm leaning towards giving the Jabur the spot, but like, I'm That's uninspired. interesting that you're more set on Mukova than Jabur if they've had the same peak, pretty much. Yeah, I guess it's because when Mukova's been healthy, she's played great. She's just been less healthy than Jabur. And Jabur didn't play great in first coming back to the tour. Again, she has started to play great. And this gets me back into the, if we're doing like recent month power rankings, she's for sure in my top eight best players in the world. Is it a top eight resume thus far to date? Yeah, I mean, again, she, I'd say yes. I'd lean there. She had a better rolling arrow. She has more than points than Mukova. Than she's Mukova. Si- yeah. yeah, she's currently sixth. Mukova's eighth. Right. That's true. So, yeah, that's true. I think we're that's a bit of like delayed bias that we're thinking Mukova over Jabor. Well, it's just because there's yeah. more clay court tennis than grass court tennis. That's really what it comes down to for me. Yeah, but did she play a ton of great clay court tournaments, Mukova? I mean, she made the French Open final. Right, <laughs> but that's yeah, but it's not like she had like this resume, right. like you know, Madrid, Rome. I mean, she made the two Dubai and Doha quarterfinals. Those were her two big results before Rolling Garros. So, Look, I don't... Ka- Carolina Mukova so far this season. I'm glad you asked. Rome round of 16. <laughs> she beat Trevisan, Georgie, lost to Bedosa in three. Um, lost to Bigu in Madrid. Not great. Beats Bigu, Sakari, Sabalenka. Pavlachenkova on her way to losing in three to Iga, but that was a really fun three-set match in the final. Look, again, oh, we I said mean, it from the start. Mukaba, five yeah, through eight is better. a toss-up. Mukova did play a better slam final than Jabor did. Maybe that's sure. why she's still six out. I mean, Jabor, uh, Mukova was certainly closer to winning the French Open yeah. Roland Garros than Jabor was to winning Wimbledon at any point. But obviously, Jabor has been top eight before. <laughs> was yeah. there last year. Was very close the year before. I think it was like, what, 10th? in 2021 so in terms of just proven capability of holding up over 10 months i think you probably give the edge to shabor over mukova but i could see why a little bit uh mukova can 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 sway people over shabor but i think i might actually go to shabor on this one haha yeah you're getting it out now no again like that's why they call it the great shot i've only been giving so-so shots up to this point everything five through eight the margins are negligible. Like, yeah. Vandrusso is the last one that I feel certain should be in right now. But again, that's why the race is so fun because you look at the actual points race. Right now, Pagula's got 29.75. Let's see, 13th place, Ostapanko's got 19.16. So she's within 1,000. You know, again, you look at 8th place, Mukva, 21.50. People who are in 1,000 points of her, you can go all the way to 25th ranked Angelina Kalanina. And again, we've got, got not Paris, but we've got Canada. We've got Cincinnati, San Diego, Guadalajara, the U.S. Open, all these big point-yielding events still on the calendar. So plenty of movement still to come on the women's side. You look at the men's side, again, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, locks for the field. I think all three are in for sure. Let's play the game again. I think Sinner and Runa are locks for me at four and five. For what it's worth, you look at the actual points race right now. Currently fourth is Stefano Tsitsipas. Fifth is Sinner. Uh, sixth is Runa. Seven, Rublev. Eight, Rude. But there's a big 
get, uh, drop between Rublev, who's got about an 800-point lead on eighth place Casper Ruud. Anyways, my my top five locks. Again, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, Runa. I feel really confident about all five of those picks. You agree? Yes. Yeah, okay. and obviously Sitsipas is ahead, but... I feel like Sitsipas is in a race towards something else entirely nowadays. So I don't know if it's I don't know if it's to make the race in Turin. Maybe it's to get married on the steps of Vatican City. I'm Fair. unclear. He's sixth in my points race. He did make the Australian Open final. It's like you don't just forget about a run like that. But like, no, some I, of us had him at the forefront of the current of the Rublev Medvedev Sitsipas generation. I was not one of those people, but we could talk to whoever it was. Yeah, I agree. And again, I still think he's sixth. He's been good enough. Rude has a slam final. He's my seven. Rublev's my eight because he won a Masters. And again, he's been pretty solid everywhere. But I think it speaks to the fact that, like, after that top five, much like on the women's side, like, has a Tsitsipas, a Rude, a Rublev been that much better than a Tiafo, a Fritz, a Hachinov, a Tommy Paul, who have all had their moments on the calendar as well? Like, yes, I think they've been a little bit better. But I don't think the margins are that big, and perhaps that's why you look at Kasparu 22-95 in terms of points. You can go all the way to 19th place Nicolas Iari. Everyone's still within 1,000 points of him, even though he made a slam final. Like, that speaks to— there's Well, been Rude some, was so terrible for the first time. Yeah, exactly. Him. There's been some one-event peakers. There have been some guys who have been solid everywhere, but maybe not exceptional. You know, Rublev has that one 1,000-level title, so that's what gives him that big bump. But— yeah, like, uh, I think 5 through 13, it's really open. It is, and yet to look at these names, like, there are so many more, like, absolutely names on the men's side that there are on the women's side, strangely enough, where I, I could see names floating around 9 through 13, their former WTA Finals people, you know, their former Slam finalists, whereas to look at, like, Fritz, Hachinov, Paul, Zverev, Nori, Tiafo. I mean, I'm a little surprised Tiafo's not ranked higher, to be honest. Like, mentally, he's so much more in the forefront of this conversation. I think he certainly ceded a lot of ground, not doing as well as I think many predicted or hoped at Wimbledon. Um, The fact that Tommy Paul's number 11 is kind of crazy, given that it's hard to remember anything that he's done since uh, the finals in in Acapulco to Demon Hour. And he certainly had opportunities at Wimbledon as well, uh, given his results on grass last year. I think if we called it today and these were the top eight, that's fine. I think with the women, there's still a lot of questions because it just feels like it's it's a combination of not a ton of amazing results or sort of like one great result each and the lack of experience where this isn't a crew of former WTA finals. Uh, it's just it's a, there isn't the same experience on the men's side past eight where you think, oh, they have to be there or they should be there. Or if they do one great result, they have to be there. I don't know if this is making a ton of sense, No, but I think all of us just say there's something about this eight that looks sound to me that I don't feel the same way about the women right now. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I would like to see a Tiafo, a Fritz or a Paul personally break through because I think the Americans have been on the edge, but again, you need a guy in that tour finals to really say you've got a guy in the mix. And I do think, America had a portion of the calendar. First third of the season, it was, there was a lot of American men's tennis storylines. Tommy making the semis, Ben making the quarters, Tiafo and Fritz having the success that they were. But yeah, that is a pretty sound top eight against Tsitsipas. If Tsitsipas, Rudin, Rublev are your six, seven, eight, it's good depth. 
And that men's ATP Tour Finals field. And again, Djokovic is the old man. Everyone else would have participated in at least one next-gen ATP Finals competition. And with that in mind, final thing for you. Let's talk through what the next-gen fields would look like on the men's and women's side right now. Just hypothetically. Right now, here's your ATP next-gen finals. You ready for this? And again, all these guys age 21 or younger. Alcaraz, Runa, Musetti, Arthur Fees, Ben Shelton, Luca Van Asha, two French teenagers, Dom Stricker, big-hitting lefty, made the finals last year. And then why not a third French teenager or 20-year-old in Arthur Cazot? Now, even if Alcaraz and Runa didn't play, you'd get a young Italian, Flavio Caboli, rock solid, or perhaps the finest young American since sliced bread, Alex Mickelson, who's been making runs of late. Like, it's a pretty good 21-and-under group, DK. I mean, obviously it helps to have Alcaraz, Runa headlining it, Musetti in that mix as well, but... Man, there's what, five top 50 guys there? Shelton, Fees, Musetti, Runa, Alcaraz, all 21 and younger? That's a good place to be. I mean, look, I think we're starting perhaps the way I think the ATP is perhaps made a bit of a monster with the way that the next gen talent is converting perhaps faster than they can replenish them. I feel like this is perhaps the first time that we're approaching that. I mean, I guess Ben Shelton would play the ATP next gen finals, right? Why wouldn't he? I don't know. I just something like you feel like you hit a point where like you wouldn't want to. Like I feel like some of these players may not. I mean, and then this is Ben's first full year on tour. Like to be a part of a showcase event, there's no way he doesn't. I would say that the ATP has probably done a better job of hyping their next gen finals in a way that the WTA did not, and that may be why I think like why would he play it? But I think they do do a good job of marketing this as a goal for their guys in a way that the WTA did not for their women in a way that was effective. I think, you know, I remember even Nakashima last year, like talking to him about like how important it would be for him to make the next gen finals. And I don't think there's that same, there was ever that same equivalent with the women. So perhaps yeah, he'll play. And if he plays the two Frenchmen play Stricker play, I think those are four names where if you're a, you know, intermediate to advanced level, you know, tennis insider, you're like, okay, half the field is like a bunch of names and I'm going to really, you know, tune into. And then there's a, a few other interesting names as well to, to pay attention to. But um, boy, if you're running the ATP next gen finals, are you a little like annoyed? Well, that a lot of the guys today and just Alcaraz. aged out. Like Alcaraz, Runa, Sinner are aging out, but they're bona fide stars. So like that, that the next gen, and they all won the next gen finals. Aruna made a final, I think. Like they they did their job, right? Right. But I think that they would want, they would hope for things to just be a little bit slower. That they could okay, maybe have, a, they could have had another year with Hulk Aruna. As I mean, they didn't get him last year. I don't. Yeah. He didn't play. He ended up pulling yeah. out because he was injured and, and was also the alternate for for the ATP finals. So it's maybe getting a little quick, but I mean, we're seeing a pretty good conversion rate over the years from next-gen finals to mm-hmm. ATP finals, which is something that I'm sure the ATP is going to be happy to boast about in, in the next couple of years as they come, as they approach this, you know, 10-year anniversary of next-gen finals, how it has accurately served as a pretty good feeding system from next-gen finals to top 50, top 40, ATP finals, you know, um, standouts. So I think they it is a and it's been an effective formula for them. And so they have they certainly whoever came up with that idea, kudos to them because yeah, they, they should play that. took a gr- they took a great idea and made it better. They for should sure. play that soundbite as they try to sell the rights to the event because yeah, I agree. That's how you're marketing it. You want to hear what the women's field would be? All right. Sure. And keep in mind 
Emma Raducanu, still eligible, wouldn't qualify for the field right now. Layla Fernandez, still eligible, wouldn't qualify for the field right now. Clara Tossin, still eligible, wouldn't qualify for the field right now. Just three names that wouldn't be in it. Here's who would be in it. Coco Goff, Jung Chin Wen, Marta Kostyuk, Linda Fruvertova, Linda Noskova, Mira Andriva, Alina Avanesian, and I lied. Last qualifier would indeed be Layla Fernandez, who'd be eighth player in. I mean, DK. Come on now. Like, Schneider, Kruger, not in the field, but if they were to sneak in, a Brenda Fruvertova wants to sneak in. That is a lot of... Re- I mean, right now, under the age of 22, and there are some players who are 21 but turned 22 this year, so they wouldn't be eligible for the next-gen fields. But right now, there are 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 15 players 21 or younger inside the top 100 of the WTA rankings. I mean, come on! Like, that would be a freaking event! I know. I mean, I think that's... It's unfortunate that we have not had the equivalent for the WTA because I think the WTA would have really benefited from being able to showcase its young talent and perhaps doing the same that the ATP has done in the sense that they are priming them to play through the season, to play towards a finals and and be a member of an elite eight, whether it's a next gen eight or a present day eight. I think there's an idea, a, a wisdom to getting these players used to winning and being, you know, being made to feel like stars, you know, that this is something that you, you know, rather than, you know, sort of hit the ground running as a tour journeyman and then have to try to rediscover what you had as a junior, perhaps need to rediscover amongst your, your elder peers. And so I think there is, it would have been, it would be, it could be, it would be a really great uh, thing for the women as well. I mean, certainly in, in the the aftermath of Mira Andreeva, boy, I bet the WTA wishes they had, you know, something to showcase, you know, their next great 16-year-old talent. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, they opted for the, you know, the, the what had been a an, an elite trophy format that rewarded the players ranked 9 through 19. And I think, you know, the, the younger players probably would have been better served by a year-end championships of their own in much the same way the ATP players appear to have been. Yeah, I agree. And again, what a fun field that would be. Goff, Chinwen, Kostyuk, Fruvertova, Naskova, and Driva. I don't care who the other two are. I mean, in, in, whatever it takes. Um, yeah, look, it's going to be fun year-end races across the board. And for all we know, there might be a WTA Tour finals, of, uh, next-gen finals event emerging in the near future. You never quite know with how the tennis world operates. And again, in a week where there is not a Grand Slam, there's not a 1,000-level event, you know how you know it's busy is that we've had DK on the show twice this week to break it all down. So DK, it is always a pleasure to have you. Any final plugs, things to say before we let you go? Well, if you want to read my recap of mm-hmm. the, the Toth uh, Jong situation, it's up on baseline. A lot of people clicked on it. Thanks to all those people who did. Um, and thanks to the players for reacting to it as quickly as they did. I mean, there were a lot of, a lot of reaction to that story. And I think it will be, depending certainly on how much Chong continues to play through the summer, a storyline that I think will continue to be revisited. Um, and yeah, otherwise just keep on trucking through what, what I think will be the start of a really exciting U.S. Open swing. I love to hear it. Well, DK, it is always a pleasure. Be safe, be healthy. We will have you on the show probably this week again, but in case we don't, we will reach you soon. Thank you as always. Be buddy. safe. Sounds like a threat. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, thank you as always.
Thank you. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with our dear friend, David Kane. Thank you to him, as always, for joining the show. Remember, DKTWNS on Twitter, and be sure to read everything he writes over on Tennis.com. Of course, there's a lot happening in the tennis world right now for the day-to-day updates. The mini-break podcast feed is the place for you. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of a new job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible, not just the mini-break Cracked Interviews podcast, where I was joined by two former UCLA Bruins standouts, Clay Thompson and Carousel, to discuss their latest innovation, the Improve app, how it's helping tennis players across the globe streamline their improvement through all aspects of their games. Of course, you can find all this content again on the website, CrackedRackets.com, or Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at CrackedRackets, whichever social media network is your preferred one. With all of that said, though, that'll do it for today's show for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends uh, across the board, and for all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great job, and we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone.